So I'm trying to get a feel from the people. And the only thing that I do is tweet. I don't know if you have a Facebook or you do Instagram and do all that. I actually now have a, a Facebook where we have a show Facebook and mm. everything else. And we'll talk about that as the, as the episodes roll along. But for me to gather the pulse of the listeners, mm-hmm. I only do it via Twitter. Sure. So I'm, I only have access to the people who listen and are on Twitter. Right. And I'm trying to get a feel for, is it banter that they like when you and I just start going off on nothing like mm-hmm. road rage and this <laughs> and, that, and that and we drink Knuckles. beers. Oh, I got to get you your beers before we start the show. I got to get you your beers from Zeke's Pizza. We got another craft beer for you to test and I want you to tell me how it is. Okay. Um, but is it the banter or is it the interviews? And if mm-hmm. I take enough tweets, it will be half and half. The first guy will say, when you guys start rambling on about nothing and it's not sportsy, I fast forward right through it. I don't want oh, any part of that. Okay. All I right. want, I want, give me some, some juice. Give me something, sure. some, some material, right? Yeah. Give me some interviews. Give me some hard hitting, unfiltered analysis. Mm-hmm. And then the next person, literally the next tweet will be, what I like most is when you guys just go off on nothing and road rage and <laughs> stories. And I like that much better than the interviews. Less interviews, much more of that. Really? So it just leaves me scratching my head. So yes. where do you stand on this? I, honestly, I think that there's a a good balance of both. I think the fact that we do have our fun and we joke. Yeah. And for people that like that, they're able to get it. And for the right. people that don't, right. they get right to the interviews that are, are being conducted by you. Okay. So I, I feel like there's a good balance, but you know, you I'm, I'm also biased because I'm a part of the show. Okay. Well, it, there's going to be a lot of interviews mm-hmm. in this particular episode number 17. I've got, I've got some interviews set up. If you like interviews, you're going to hear from... I don't know if you've heard this, but Edgar Martinez was was hey. elected to the Hall of Fame. And by the I, way... I have heard. That's been that's been, that's been breaking news. And but by I've, the way, for yeah. the people who like to fast forward through the open, the yeah. unfiltered... Don't do that this time. I'm just warning you, don't do that. Oh. You'll be sorry. It's like what you say to your kids. Yeah, don't you. do that. Don't do that. Don't shave too early, Max. Mm. Don't start shaving too early because yes. once you start shaving, yes. you'll be shaving the rest of your life. And you'll be like Grizzly Adams. Don't mm-hmm. don't start. Don't 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 start. You'll be sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, well, don't fast forward through the open because it's not the normal open. It's a special open. Okay. That people will get excited about. Love it. But Edgar made the Hall of Fame. I'm very excited for that. I don't know. I know that you played baseball, and you're, sure. you probably are more excited about it than I am. I mean, you've been around a lot longer he's, here. Than he's I. the guy. I've been on the earth longer than you. Yeah. But you've been in Seattle longer than me. <laughs> he's made it. Unbelievable. And so, uh, Jason Stark's going to put it all in perspective. He writes for The Athletic. He was on ESPN for a million years. And he was on the MLB Network's like all day presentation. Mm-hmm. One of about thirty people that were on it was awesome. If you're a baseball nerd like I, it was. I watched the whole. Did you really? I watched for hours. I couldn't stop watching it, and I was seeing things over and over again that I'd already seen like two hours. And you're earlier. still watching they it. They were like pieces and like yeah. essays. Yeah, they were so good. It was so well done. Hmm. Uh, so longtime ESPN analyst Jason Stark on Edgar, why it took so long, Messina, Roy Halladay breaks my heart, the Mariano Rivera story, the steroid guys, all of that with Jason Stark. And mm-hmm. then I wanted to get like a, a an Edgar Martinez, kind of an inside Edgar Martinez thing with somebody who coached him or played with him. And I reached out, do you remember the name Larry Boa? Oh, of course. Does all of our audience remember Larry Boa? 
if you followed baseball, yeah, you, I mean, like when I was a kid, Larry Bow was, he was a, a player. Guy, yeah, he was a, a good player. Yeah, he was yeah. a very good infielder. He was like a five or six time All Star. Yeah, and then he became a man. He was Manager of the Year one year, and then he was a coach on a lot of different staffs, mm-hmm. like Joe Torre. He was like Joe Torre's right hand man. I think in both New York and L.A. Well, he was here with Lou Pinella, right? And he got to know Edgar. And he's very colorful, and he's got stories to tell, and mm. he's and so he's got some good Edgar stories. He just just trust me on this. Fantastic. He was here in the year two thousand when Edgar went off for thirty seven home runs and one hundred and forty five oh RBI. So Larry Bowes on episode number uh, seventeen. Uh, Jason Lockenfora, we've got to get him on. We're, we're counting our way down to the Super Bowl, and now I'm behind. I'm bitter about this. Of course you are. Because I should have never did what I did. I, I, I got too generous. I got totally too generous last week. I was up one, and I allowed him to go second in both of them. Mm-hmm. And so he just went opposite. Of, he just went oppo on right, me. Right, And I got both of them wrong, which means he got both of them right, and now he's one up going mm-hmm. into the Super Bowl. So Jason Locken four, and he's got some some things to say about Vegas and gambling and how gambling is infiltrating the NFL and how the NFL stands to make owners stand to make, not millions. Billions. Billions. Yeah. And it's not too far off that we're going to be able to go to like the Seahawks game and gamble on the game from our phone as we sit in our seats. Except for, except for here in Seattle where the yeah, well, yeah, we're a little behind. We need a little technology a little upgrade. And then I asked you this before we started to record: Paul B. and Cardi. Mm-hmm. Do you know that name? I do. Do you think what what percentage of the people listening right now know Paul B. and Cardi? Less than five percent, I would think. Okay, so he played. He was a coach. He was, a coach. He was, a, he was actually a coach of the year for yeah. I think Wright State. He was a coach of the year of his conference. Mm-hmm. And then he was an assistant like at Ohio State and Boston. He went to the Elite Eight with Boston College. He's been around. He's been a high school coach. And now he is the he is the national recruiting director for ESPN. Mm-hmm. And he does the top 100 list. He knows all about the high school. And when Isaiah Stewart decided to make his announcement on ESPN, he did it with Paul Biancardi. Right. So no one knows Isaiah Stewart's game as well as well, um, probably some do, but he knows. Sure. He knows. Isaiah. He can tell. He's us seen him play a, a bunch. Lot. He can yeah. call his game just the other night right. on ESPN. That's right. And so he's going to tell us who is this kid. Why is he coming? What did Hop do to get him? What kind of game does he have? Who does he remind him of? And we'll talk just the national recruiting. And what he's going to tell you is something that you are going to embrace hearing as a Husky guy and a Pac-12 guy. He's mm-hmm. going to tell you the Pac-12 is loading up in the class of 2019. Mm. So this may be a one-year aberration on the downward spiral of the Pac-12. Arizona's got a great class. Oregon's got a class. Now, Washington could have an unbelievable, if they get McDaniels. And we'll talk, by the way, with him about McDaniels. So a lot to do in episode number 17. But my, 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 my first thought is don't speed through the open. Okay. Okay. And I'm a little disappointed because we're not getting rated much anymore on iTunes. I just want you to know. That's that's unacceptable because you know that was my thing. Yeah. When we first started. I'm just telling you. It it's was, over. I think the honeymoon's over. It's, is it I think really? The novelty's worn off. Oh, come people on. are not going to iTunes and giving us five stars. They're not even. Listen, they're not even. We're we're done. I mean, I, we're, I I have faith in the people. You do. That we're going to see a rebound in the ratings. Five stars only. Yes. Please rate it. I just think people got excited early about the return and the novel and the new idea and the unfiltered, unfiltered thing. And, yeah. and now we're just kind of, 
Oh, those guys, they're on episode 17. They're, they're old hat. It's, mm. you know, mm. so no one's subscribing. No one's rating. <laughs> no one's doing anything. You are making No it one's listening anymore. You just jumped off a cliff right here. No, just I'm, not, I'm not jumping off. I'm just telling you. I know that was important to you. It was important. You said to me at Panera, one yeah. of our meetings, yes. you got to get them to subscribe and rate. And a million people have told me that. Yep. And I'm just updating you with the information. Okay. No one's rating us anymore. All right. We're done. All right. People, Mitch has spoken. Yeah, I'm just saying. You, you, you got to continue. If you're listening, yeah. continue to rate five stars only. All right, we haven't started the show yet. That's right. Brought to you by Daniel's Broiler, Valentine's Day, just about upon us. A Thursday this year, so you and your loved one can celebrate on Friday or Saturday at any of the four locations. Leshy, South Lake Union, Bellevue, or the brand new location, downtown Hyatt Regency. Jaguar Land Rover of Bellevue. A newly remodeled Defender is on its way back. Tell the folks of Land Rover of Bellevue that you are a Mitch Unfiltered listener and you can go right to the straight to the top of the VIP list. And Zeke's Pizza, Jason, can you make the announcement today? It's episode 17, Zeke's Pizza, Super Bowl Sunday now is... Dan Black is my guy. Really like Dan Black. That's my announcement. Love that guy. When can we get either... A yay or a nay. Did you not? We need to start the show, so I'll come back to that. Okay. You promise? Yeah. Zeke's Pizza, join me on Super Bowl Sunday at the brand new Capitol Hill location on Mercer Street. I'd like to say join us, but every time I go and make notes, I'm like, can I say us or do I have to say me? When is Jason going to get the get the uh, the thumbs up mm-hmm. from the boss and say, hey, and bring the boss. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about bringing the fam. Bring yeah. them down. Yeah. Play the squares. Yeah. Watch Play the game with us. <laughs> Zeke's Pizza. The Zeke's Capitol Hill location for Super Bowl Sunday. Here we go. Don't speed through it. Don't do it. It's episode number 17. Unfiltered. The only guy that I didn't want to face yeah. when tough situation comes, yeah. it was Edgar Martinez. The reason is because I, I couldn't get him out. I couldn't get him out. It didn't matter how I threw the ball. I couldn't get him out. He had if your someone, number? Oh, my God. More than my number. <laughs> he, your, he got my he breakfast, your, lunch, and number, dinner. Dress. <laughs> <laughs> he got everything for me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Fastball swung on at the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and... Swung on and a high fly ball. 
hit the deep center field. Lawson goes back and will fly away. Edgar Martinez on the first pitch goes dead center field. So back to back to one Jack. No balls and a strike to Martinez. Mitch is unfiltered. Solo drinker? Is that the way it works? Solo today. You're solo. Solo today. Yeah. Yes. I hope everybody enjoyed that little musical ode to Edgar Martinez. A little different open than Quality. normal. Yes. I mean, you hear Dave Niehaus yelling and screaming about Edgar Martinez. It's a home run, right? right. It doesn't matter what he's screaming about. If Dave Niehaus is screaming about Edgar Martinez, I'm in. This is episode number 17, and I got to thinking about this number thing Mm -hmm. going up too high and everything else and season ones and season twos. And then I started thinking, why are we not – we're sportsy. Why are we not talking about, like, episode 17, Dave Craig, 17. This is kind of the Dave Craig. And so I looked up 17s, John Havlicek. Stole the ball. Sad Havlicek stole the ball. Um, Doug Williams, mm-hmm. who comes up Super Bowl week every year. His name comes up. Do you know why? It's because there's this urban myth that never happened, but everybody thinks it happened, that at one of those big media sessions, mm-hmm. somebody asked him the week that he was at the Super Bowl, how long have you been a black quarterback? There, there is this, there's this, been, this has been lingering for... 30, 30 years, whether this question was ever asked or it wasn't asked. And everybody like thinks it was asked. It was never asked. But everybody thinks it was asked. How so, long? Hey, okay, Doug, yeah. how long have you been a black quarterback? So let me ask you this. Yeah. If the question wasn't asked. Yes. Is there any evidence that he responded to something similar to that? Yeah, I think it would. I think what the 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 reality is, and it hurts the story. I can give you a different one that is actually true that you'll laugh at. Yeah, but I think the actual question was something like, "When did it become? When did you becoming a black quarterback? When did that matter? When 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 did that have like Got it. significance to you? Got it. As opposed to how long have you been yeah. a black quarterback? <laughs> yeah. those, those are two those different, are very questions. different things. Yeah. yeah. So it never happened. But people like to think that at that that big media day mm-hmm. at the Super Bowl that happened. Mm-hmm. What did happen? I will I will give you one that did happen, and I know it happened because people who were there have all co- corroborated whatever the yeah. the word is yeah. the story, and that is when the Eagles were playing the Raiders many many years ago. Um, it was Jim Plunkett and the Raiders against the Eagles. I think Ron Jaworski was the quarterback of the, Herm Edwards. of the Eagles. Yes. And Jim Plunkett was doing an interview during media day, and he was talking about how he grew up in a special needs household, that his mother was blind and his father had passed away and mm-hmm. was also blind. And he was talking about that. And I guess one of the members of the Eagles media 
kept on trying to interrupt, interrupt, and they went on to some other things, and other people were asking questions, and this guy was like trying to write the story, and so like two or three minutes later, he yells, he yells, Jim, Jim, I want to make sure I have that right. Now, was it was it a dead mother and a blind father, or was it a, no way. or was it a blind mother and a dead father? That's what he asked, <sighs> trying to get his story right. Now that did actually happen, That's and, and people have been, people have been laughing about that. I think Jim Plunkett even might even laugh about that, but that actually did, as opposed to the Doug Williams thing, happen. So there's your. Uh, so this is su- episode these are seventeen. Super Bowl stories, right there by Mitch. Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Super Bowl media stories. Yes. Yeah. Seventeen is not so great. But okay. Dave Craig, Dave Craig was seventeen. All right. But we have to clean up sixteen. We do. I thought sixteen was over. We have to clean up the poll. There's n- okay. Are you disappointed with the poll? No, results? because the poll results was what I would have done. Knuckles. Knuckles. Knuckles won 52% I know, so I'm not disappointed. People seem to be surprised by that result. You go go Knuckles. Well, I don't really go either way because when's the last time I actually flipped somebody off? It's been been quite a many a year. Yeah. But if I had to choose, I'm going Knuckles. And so are 52%. Yeah. People were like outraged by that. They're like, who goes Knuckles anymore? Nobody goes Knuckles. And Knuckles is passe. Yeah. This is the banter versus interview question. And it's just neck and neck. Yeah. And it's Knuckles versus no Knuckles. Knuckles versus no. Knuckles edged him out. Edged him out. By a knuckle. I mean, it was, it, was, <laughs> it was really close. It was really close. What wasn't really close was Edgar into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Edgar got nearly 90% of the vote. So after 10 years, we all thought it was going to happen. It's finally happened. He goes in with Roy Halladay, which just tears my heart apart mm. that Roy Halladay is not alive to celebrate with his, uh, his guys. Uh, Mike Mussina and Mariano Rivera, 100% for Mariano Rivera. Which is deserved, but he shouldn't have been the first one. No. Right. There should have been a million guys before that. Yeah. Well, including Griffey. Yeah. Well, Hank Aaron, Mickey yeah, Mantle, Babe yeah. Ruth. Yeah. Uh, he's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he was all right. Babe he's Ruth decent. was pretty good. Uh, he's the first, Mariano Rivera. And by the way, in the open, the voice that you heard is saying that I can't, I love that clip that I played in the open, which is, I couldn't get Edgar Martinez out. The guy I didn't want to face. Mm-hmm. Mariano Rivera right. saying, the guy that I just, I just, he owned me. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Rose says something like, he had your number. <laughs> and you heard him say, he had me my lunch, my breakfast, <laughs> lunch, and dinner. Yeah. I couldn't get him out. So I love that. And I also love, even though it took 10 years, I love, I'm a statistical guy. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that Edgar goes in with these three guys, right? Mm-hmm. He goes in with three pitchers, right? Correct. He goes in with Roy Halladay. Uh, he hit 444 against Roy Halladay in his career. He goes in with Mike Mussina. Eh, he hit 307. Uh, he slugged 627 against Mike Mussina. And he goes into with Mariano Rivera, who nobody Unhittable. Hit. Unhittable Mariano yeah. Rivera. Huh? He hit 579 against, against Mariano Rivera. I just love, if you're a stat guy like I am and you're a baseball guy, you just can't understand how it took so long for Edgar Martinez. I guess you can because he didn't play defense. He, he was a DH. Mm-hmm. There's a stigma around the DH. But I'll, I'll give you my favorite. Now, you can do this for hours. We could do this for hours. And you'll hear from Jason Stark and Larry Boa, and we'll talk Edgar a lot in this segment or in this episode. But I'll give you my favorite. There's a million fun numbers with Edgar Martinez. I will give you my, my, uh, my honorable mentions. Okay. And then I'll give you my favorite statistical 
statistical these are the nuggets. fact. Yeah, okay. My my favorite statistical fact as it relates to Edgar Martinez will be the, the last one. I'll give you my honorable mentions. Okay. Um, he hit three twelve in his career. He his on base percentage was four eighteen, and he slugged five fifteen. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is where his career yeah. averages. Yeah. Big Poppy. Yeah. Who's going to be either a first ballot or very close to a first ballot Hall of Famer? Is considered the standard of DHs. Okay, he didn't have one year, not one year. Actually, he had one. He had one year where in he, total, in total, where he was able to match Edgar Martinez's career line of three twelve, four eighteen, and five fifteen. That's, that's honor- ridiculous. That's honor- that's that's honorable mention number one. That's honorable mention. Okay, I got some better ones. I've got better ones. There's a million of these, but my, I'm leading to my favorite. All right. Edgar Martinez, for six consecutive years, there was a six-year stretch. He hit 320 or better, got on base 420 or better, and slugged 550 or better. He did it in six consecutive years, okay? Now, how rare is that? Here are the names of the people that did it in six or more years straight in Major League Baseball. Rogers Hornsby in 1920. Babe Ruth in 1926. Lou Gehrig in 1930. Ted Williams in 1939. And Edgar Martinez in 1995 through the year 2000. That's ridiculous. That's honorable mention number two. You like that stat? Do I get a bell on that one? Here's here's my all-time favorite Edgar Martinez fact. All-time favorite. My all-time favorite. My all-time favorite. Those first two were pretty darn good. This is the be- to me. This is the best. It's so good that I don't believe it. I've known it, and I've looked at you. It's impossible to actually go through every player in Major League history. You're going to hear why to actually verify this. I'm going to assume it's right because I've known it for a while. But it is a great. This is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Okay, what I'm about to tell you. A season with 25 home runs. 50 doubles and 100 walks. At least 25 home runs, 50 doubles and 100 walks. In 1995, remember 95? Oh, yeah. Pretty good year. Edgar Martinez, 29 home runs, Mm -hmm. 52 doubles, Mm -hmm. 116 walks. Okay. He turned around in 1996, 26 homers, 52 doubles, 123 RBIs, 123 walks. Mm Mm-hmm. 25, 50, and 100. He did it in back-to-back years. If you took every Hall of Fame hitter in the history of Major League Baseball and added up how many times anybody has done it ever. In back-to-back years? No. Ever. It's happened twice. 1927, Lou Gehrig did it. He did it once in his career. And Stan the Man did it in 1953. That's the total of Hall of Famers that have done it. That's the total times it's been done by Hall of Famer. And Edgar Martinez has done it himself twice and did it in back-to-back years. 25 or more homers, 50 or more doubles, 100 or more walks in a season. So that begs the question. And and I'm going to apologize if somebody can find some sort of verification or some sort of fact that it's untrue. I, I think it's true. I think it's true. Think about that for a second. Every Hall of Famer have total combined to do it two times. Edgar did it twice himself in back-to-back years. Come on. (laughs) 
And this guy I waited. I wish people ten- could see your face. Oh, like, oh, it's good. This guy waited 10 years. I know. That, that did that. That did that. The three nuggets that you just gave. Yes. Would make him seem like a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yes. And yet he Thank had to you. wait till the last available Thank opportunity you. to him to get in. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm just saying. That's my favorite all-time oh. Edgar Martinez fact. I don't think you can beat that. Good stuff. That's incredible. All right. Before we get to the interviews, just a, a few other things that I've got to mention to you because I, I, I have to scold you. Oh. I have to scold you. Shame on you, Jason Hamilton. For? The NFL moved officials in New Orleans from a downtown hotel to one in the suburbs because they were being harassed after the game the other night by phone and in person. And I know you were disappointed in their call, but for you to go to that extreme, <laughs> to be calling them yeah. and, and bitching them out on the phone and make them change hotels, thanks a, that, that, that's a I do, little bit. I do my small part in this I world. didn't think you cared that much about the New Orleans Saints. Who are you? Eldridge Kasner? I mean, who are you? Who that? <laughs> No, who that nation? <laughs> I didn't know you were that upset that you're How calling about that? that. Yeah, that's pretty. It's sort of scary, but I kind of get it. I mean, fired, fired. That's what you said. Fired. And Jason Lockenfora is going to argue with me about what should have happened. He's going to tell us in his segment today on episode 17 that he thinks the guy in New York mm-hmm. should have said in the year ear, "Hey guys, you may want to huddle up on this one." Because now they have, yeah, they have contact. Yeah. They have all contact all the time, mm-hmm. permanent contact in the ear. And he's going to say, they, they, he's, he, oh, I'm looking at it right now in New York. You guys, you guys may have missed this one, you bet. But to me, that's re, that's kind of replay. You're not allowed to do that. Well, you're allowed to do it behind the scenes, yes. Because essentially, that's what it is. You're manipulating. You're the puppet master. You're going to pull the strings, right? And in that situation, here's what we would say. Blow the whistle, let the two or three confer, and then go, yeah, you know, I, from my angle, it looked like I, he was blocked. I couldn't see if it was before. From your angle, we're going to throw a flag down. See that? And, and what you're going to – I don't want to give up too much yeah, away then, then of what don't. happens between me and Lock and Four. Yeah. I'll just say to you what, I, what I'm, you're going to hear me say to him, which is, okay, the only time that – Officials get together, and then like a minute after the play's over, they come and they toss the flag a minute later yep. is under one circumstance. And that's, was the quarterback grounding. outside the par- pocket mm-hmm. for intentional yeah, grounding? grounding. Yeah. They do that on occasion where they don't know whether it's intentional yeah. grounding. They get together, they look, they look, and then all of a sudden the official will come and drop the flag. Yep. Other than that, you never see for PI or anything where the officials get together and then like a minute later, come over and throw the flag. It just doesn't happen. It would be unprecedented for them to do such a... Now, they could have, I suppose, but aren't they really using instant replay if they use the guy in New York when this is not a reviewable situation? Well, I would- you use, they're using somebody who has the benefit of seeing it over and over again. So you're going to hear Lock and Four and I disagree about Okay, this. I have two things to say about sure, that. We'll sure. move on. Yeah. You're talking to a basketball guy. Yeah. It happens in basketball sometimes when two referees make the wrong call. So a call has been made, right? Then there's we're conferring about that. Right. Sometimes it happens when there's no call made, which is did somebody touch the ball? Did who is it out on? We're not making a call. We're going to go talk to each other for a second and then we're going to decide whose ball it is. It happens in football sometimes. 
See, look at, ooh, look at, ooh, you parked up. You leaned into the we mic. We just talked about this. It only happens in football when it's an illegal grounding. Here's where, grounding. here's where a, a play call happens after a play is over where yeah. ref, referees get together. Right. A fumble or something where somebody looks like they may have touched the ground, may not have touched the ground. They don't blow the whistle dead. They yeah. allow oh, it yeah. to go. Oh, yeah. Then oh, yeah. they get together before oh, they yeah. say, did he oh, yeah. or did he not? Oh, yeah. They're conferring after yeah. the play is over. Yeah. But that's different than a they, penalty. But that's different than a penalty. But it's not during a review. It's not a review. It's but a it's going to be reviewed. It's going to be reviewed. That's the play that's going to be reviewed. Sure. The penalty is never going to be that's reviewed. That's true. And so, you know, to come after they talk and bring a, fl- a flag and then, and then whoops, Give here, it to here, you. we're going we're yeah. to do it now. Yeah. It's just, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying that I would have been upset if had they done that would have been the right call but it would have it would have been the right call but it would really stretch it would lead to a lot yeah. of there'd be a lot of yeah. criticism of okay hold on why all of a sudden who were they hearing from were they talking to the guy in New York or were they not talking to the, they're not supposed to talk to the guy in New York who's got the benefit of replay and so it would it would have gotten dicey but mm-hmm. the right call would have been made mm-hmm. so there's that Big news the last couple of months from Daniel's broiler, Jason Hamilton. Daniel's brand new location at the new downtown Hyatt Regency is open. While world-class hospitality makes each Daniel's special, Daniel's new downtown location is truly unique. It's a location that's open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Only Daniel's that can say that. That's a little trivia question for mm-hmm. you. A little Daniel stump the band right there for you. New Daniel's. Downtown, Hyatt Regency, breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. If you live or work downtown, planning an evening downtown, or visiting Seattle, you now have a world-class choice for prime steaks and seafood. Daniel's new downtown location located on the second floor of the new downtown Hyatt Regency at 8th and Howell. You can make your reservation today. Valentine's Day is coming up for this world-class addition to the Daniels family. Locally owned by the Schwartz family and located at South Lake Union, Leshy Marina, Bellevue Place, and now the new downtown Hyatt Regency, Daniels Broiler for Valentine's Day, a world-class steakhouse. Unfiltered. It was one of those days. It was one of those days. We are joyous here in the Pacific Northwest, and as they are around the country with different uh, new Hall of Famers, the Hall of Fame class will be four. And I watched all the coverage on the MLB Network, which included our next guest, and he is one of our favorites. Joining us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline is Jason Stark. And Jason of The Athletic now, and how was the experience on TV? It was great and fun and in- informational. It was terrific to watch. How is it being there with all those guys? You know, I tweeted about this uh, Wednesday morning. That was really one of the coolest, most uplifting experiences of my career, and I mean that because I've, you know, I've never spent the day in MLB Network when it was Hall of Fame Election Day uh, with so much news and drama and compelling personalities and storylines and i love the guys that i hung out in the studio with for all those hours five consecutive hours right and uh, you know what i it was as much fun to do that show as to watch that show and when i wasn't on i was hanging on every word it was great uh we are with and i should point this out the spink award winner and a man going into the hall of fame in his own accord to jason stark 
And um, what what made it? Was it a special class yesterday? I mean, the the holiday story is gut wrenching and heartbreaking for us out here. The Edgar Martinez story is everything. And then you've got one hundred percent. I laughed about this with Steve Phillips the other day. It's funny. It was fifteen years ago, and we weren't sure we were putting relievers into the Hall of Fame, Jason. And and, and now we're now we're unanimously putting them in. Uh, better than Hank Aaron and Ken Griffey Jr. and Mickey Mantle, we're gonna we're gonna make the first 100 percenter a relief pitcher. Uh, my, how times have changed! <laughs> right, <laughs> but I, I want you to think this through, Mitch. I wrote about this a little bit in my column. Um, you know, for 83 years, people found reasons to perpetuate the dopiest tradition in sports, <laughs> and not you know found reasons not to vote for Babe Ruth and Willie Mays and 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 Junior Griffey and Randy Johnson and pick your favorite living legend. That was ridiculous. It was embarrassing. But nobody could find a reason not to vote for Mariano Rivera because, you know, it's not just that he's the greatest closer of all time. I don't even know who we would decide is the second greatest closer of all time. But whoever it is, the gap between him and that guy is greater than the gap between number one and number two at any position. I did the, I did the Hall of Fame voting math, and even if you just do it as a great talk show podcast topic, I don't know that you can argue that there's a greater gap between one and two at any position, maybe in any sport. That's right. The only one that I can come up with off the top of my head is Jerry Rice to other receivers in the National Football League. They used to say the same thing about him and the wide receiving crew that whoever was the second best wide receiver was a million miles away from Jerry Rice. But I get the point. He was uh, he was special um, and uh, he did things that we've never seen before. And his performance, I mean, how can you go even one step further than his performance in the postseason, right? When it mattered most... Unless Edgar Martinez was at bat, uh, Mariano (laughs) Rivera was automatic unless our guy was facing him. Other than that, you couldn't couldn't even get a hit. Forget getting a run off him. You couldn't get a hit off him. No. I had an ERA under one in 141 postseason innings. An ERA under one. And the the whip was under one, meaning less than one base runner per inning. The only other guys who have even pitched 50 postseason innings and can have it, who ha- and can say they had an ERA and WHIP under one, are Christy Mathewson and Sandy Koufax. Wow. I mean, no matter whether, even if he did it four, five, six, eight, nine outs at a time, whatever it was, this is one of the greatest October pitchers of all time. Amazing stuff. Uh, I've asked everybody this question. I'd like to get your opinion. Why did it take 10 years for Edgar to get in? Is it just the DH thing, or was there something else? And what happened in the last three or four years? I don't think he got too many hits in the last two or three years. Um, What happened that all of a sudden he became the first guy, and you can probably fill in the blank, to go up what percentage points in four straight years? Something something crazy, right? That would be the only four-year period in which Edgar got as many hits as the two of us. (laughs) And... Uh, here's my theory. I mean, just think about how people voted 10 years ago. We didn't have the kind of information to evaluate players then that we have now. Now, I always thought Edgar was a Hall of Famer. I actually have to rewrite my Stark Truth Overrated Underrated book because he was the most underrated mm-hmm. DH of all time in that book. Mm-hmm. And now I, don't, I, I guess I might have to reevaluate. But 
you know, now we no longer care anywhere near as much about the counting numbers. You know, the old magic numbers where you had to have 500 homers or 3,000 hits or you had to at least come close. So a guy with 2,200 hits and barely more than 300 homers, people who voted the old-fashioned way, they could never see through the counting numbers to get the idea that a guy was a Hall of Famer, especially if he was just a DH, if he never played the field. And like that was a really interesting argument, but let's look a little closer using the prism of the information that we have now. If you just do that, it becomes easy. I mean, my favorite is OPS Plus, right? It's a really simple tool. It takes OPS, which is on-base percentage plus slugging, and it puts a guy's OPS in and adjust in, in context for his era and the ballpark he played in. And so you can compare any player to any other player very easily doing it that way. Edgar's career OPS Plus was 147. So it was 47% better than the average hitter of his era. And, you know, I like to, like, make lists. You want just some names of players mm-hmm. who have never mm-hmm. even had a season. Yes. Not one with a 147 OPS plus. Just some active players. Let alone Manny a career. Machado let would, alone a career. Of let alone a career. Right. Manny Machado would be one. Nolan Arenado would be one. Chris Bryant. Francisco Lindor. Evan Lund. Goria, Yoannis Cespedes. I, I keep going. Harold Baines never had one. He just got elected to the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee. Right. Edgar's career OPS plus was 147. That's amazing. I said to you, Jason Stark, before we started recording, um, that there is an attachment. There is a love affair with Edgar Martinez. Of course, Ken Griffey Jr. is probably the greatest athlete that's ever come out of the Northwest and everybody's hero. But there's something different about our relationship with Edgar than our relationship with Junior. And we could probably spend an hour trying to figure that, psychoanalyze that. I'm not sure I'm smart enough or articulate enough articulate enough to put it into words. Um, maybe he's just an every man's man. Maybe, you know, it wasn't expected. He came out of nowhere. Maybe there's a there's a uh, an underdog quality to Edgar Martinez. Of course, Ken Griffey Jr. was going to be a Hall of Famer from the day he stepped onto a high school uh, ball <laughs> field. Um, you want to take a shot at that? What is it about Edgar that you think we love so much about him in the Pacific Northwest? Well, I'm, I'm sure the fact that he never left and that he's still there, that's helpful. Yeah. You know, the, the, the more guys hang around with you, the yep. uh, yep. easier it is to love them. Yeah. But, you know, they just have such different ways about them. Their personalities are so different. You know, Junior on the field, just the the epitome of charisma. But off the field, it was was often, it was just so hard to know what to make of him. You know, like my experience with him was, it felt like if I showed up at the park and I really wanted to talk to him, he had no interest in talking to me. But if I showed up at the park and I wanted to talk to anybody else in the clubhouse, he was running across the room to talk to me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was really a strange experience, but that kind of defines him. Yeah. He really defied characterization. 
You know, you, you, you just never knew on any day how to describe them. Um, I, and I, I'm saying that as somebody who likes them and loved to watch them play. But Edgar was just a consistent human being and one of the most dependable players and hitters who ever lived. Um, he never had to play any kind of guessing game about what Edgar was going to be any given day, any given year, on the field or off. Um, he was an easy guy to get comfortable with, an easy guy to like, an easy guy to talk to, and a really easy guy to watch hit. Does that capture it at all? Yeah, it does. And you know, and as you're describing him, I'm thinking of Roy Halladay. And I'm wondering if you see some some similarities in that regard. Very, uh, just very workmanlike, not very uh, eccentric off the field. I interviewed him a couple of times. It was hard to get a, a long sentence out of him. Um, what about Roy Halladay? And you're in Philadelphia. What do you remember about him? And, of course, the, the heartbreak and sadness that he wasn't around to enjoy that day. Yeah, I mean, there is that. Just the... the to mix, to mix the elation with the sadness is really strange. We haven't really experienced anything like this because if you don't count Roberto Clemente, who got elected in a special election, we haven't had a player get elected on the first ballot by the writers and not be alive to enjoy it in 83 years since the first Hall of Fame class, Christy Matthewson. And so we, it's, I mean, just that part of the story alone is, is so emotional and so tragic and so difficult to come to grips with. Uh, he'll really be missed in Cooperstown in July because just a wonderful man with so much to, to offer uh, and really interesting with a lot of levels to him. Just didn't enjoy talking about himself. But he did have that thing that Edgar had where he, his first priority every day, every game, every year was greatness. That commitment to being as great as he could be, to be as prepared as he could be, as focused as he could be, and as consistent and dependable as he could be. Uh, I, I really believe that dependability is the most underrated quality in sports and, and maybe in life, Mitch. Mm-hmm. Um, for 10 years... You tell me who was more dependable than Roy Halladay. He was top five in the Cy Young seven times in ten years. And one of the other years, he was leading the league in everything when he got hit by a line drive and broke his leg. He'd already been told he was going to start the All-Star game and got hit in the last start before the All-Star game. That's really like eight Cy Young-type seasons in ten years. I mean, the list of guys who have done that is it's randy and pedro and i'm trying to think about this off the top of my head uh jim palmer kershaw um um greg maddox those are the only other pitchers with seven top five finishes in the cy young in 10 years that's greatness and consistent greatness. For how many years have you and I been talking, going all the way back to when I was 20, 30 minutes late to every every radio show? How long? Oh, you were? We, yeah, I was. Um, how many years are we talking about? What are we going to do with Roger Clemens? What are we going to do with Barry Bonds? <laughs> uh, soon the, the conversation will be, 
what are we going to do with Alex Rodriguez? And um, you and I haven't talked about that in a long time. Share with us how you have seen the process go and where where we are today on on that group of players versus maybe where we were three or four years ago on those guys. I I, I almost feel like we're on a continuous loop. It just goes <laughs> round and round. I, you know, I think if I remember this right, Mark McGuire was – uh, his first year of the ballot was 2007. So we've been doing the same act, having the same debate right. for 13 consecutive Hall of Fame elections. Um, that's fun. And, <laughs> you know, we had a little flurry there a few years back, but Siva got elected, Tony LaRusa got elected. You know, we had some players get elected with some clouds over them. And, uh, you know, at that point, people reached a conclusion that I think I, I've exp- I expressed to you, I don't know how many years ago, that the, the trying to keep all the cheaters out of the Hall of Fame was impossible, right? The slope was too, way too slippery. Right. And when it, it dawned on hundreds of voters that that was true, then we saw this big surge for Bonds and Clemens beyond 50%. And I thought at that point, they're getting in. Everybody else that has reached... 50-plus percent with five, six years to, to go has gotten elected. But the last two years, we've seen something interesting. And it, yesterday was especially interesting to me because, look, the four guys who got elected last year disappeared from the ballot, right? So that's 1,500 spots that opened up in our ballots. And we saw players take enormous leaps. Those two guys didn't. I mean, they, they their increase was less than 3%, and it was about a dozen voters, pretty much all new voters. You know, the if you break down the, the different ballots that have been out there publicly, you can see that only three returning voters changed their minds and voted for these guys. And what's that tell us? It tells us that people now have their minds made up. The returning voters who vote year after year if they were open to changing their minds, they already did that. And I see no traction for them toward getting election anytime soon. They've got to figure out where to get more than 70 votes. And that's I, those, there's just not enough minds to change or enough new voters to replace older voters for that to happen. So here's what it means. Their last year on the ballot, they have three more to go, is 2022. And that's A-Rod's first year on the ballot. <laughs> so, like, after being stuck in this debate in perpetuity, all of a sudden, that year, it's the story again. Isn't it? It's the story. It's, yeah. it's going to be louder and longer than it's been probably since McGuire, or maybe since the first year of Bonds and Clemens. And I don't know how it's going to turn out, but... If I were a betting man now, I'm going to bet they don't make it. Well, it would be all, no it would be it would be it would be all three or none, right? One of them can't overcome the other two. Well, they? no, I don't know that that's true because Alex got suspended for 100 games, so he's in he's in the Manny Ramirez category where if you did it after the age of testing and suspensions and you served that much time, I think voters hold you to a different standard. It's playing the guessing game before that 
that is not okay. working out real well. You know, if we're trying, okay. if we're trying to, to erect a hall of purity, we screwed that all up. It's too late. We, you know, we've already elected players who use the same stuff they used. I think everybody's convinced of that. So now what are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah, Jason Stark, Hall of Famer in his own right. My last question I'm afraid people would giggle around the country at, but since I'm, I'm not around the country, I'll just brace myself for the answer. I want to ask it to you anyway, and that is Felix Hernandez. I assume you're going to tell me, great, great pitcher, just not long enough, not enough Cy Youngs, and never pitched in the postseason, will not get serious consideration for the Hall of Fame when he's finished. Um, I think it all depends on how you define serious consideration. You know, uh, Felix had, he had a stretch of dominance that means we should be spending time thinking long and hard about him. Uh, I would say his stretch of dominance was maybe seven years. And those seven years are, are they're maybe not quite Johan Santana level, but just below. Um, I haven't looked this up in a long time, but the ERA definitely above three. Pitching in the American League, um, winning percentage close to twice as many wins as losses. ERA plus, which is the same as OPS plus, was 130 some or other. Um, like that's a period of domination. That deserves our attention, mm-hmm. but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that there's not gonna be quite enough beyond that or around that to get him in. Um, hasn't really been great since age twenty something, twenty seven, twenty eight. I, I, I got, maybe you might be able to stretch at twenty nine, and he, he, the voters have not been real open-minded to electing pitchers who fit that description. But I, I don't think Felix is completely out of the conversation. I just think the last two, three years have really damaged his chances. He was on a Hall of Fame track. Yeah, yeah. Jason Stark, so what happens now from your standpoint? Do you go – is it the same day? I mean, what, what happens with your award and your – what happens? What's the rule? Well, I just was in Cooperstown last week for my orientation. Okay. And, you know, I'm not really an inductee. I'm an honoree. Okay. I've been trying to be careful and not compare myself to <laughs> Mariana Rivera or Edgar. I'm not them. I didn't. I, my achievements it's close. are not their It's close. You, you're, you, you said dependability is an underrated stat. You're dependable. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Um, but at, at any rate... I, you know, I spent two days in Cooperstown, and they treated me like I'm Edgar. They treated me really like I'm Mariano. And I'm going to share that weekend with them. I'm, I'm bonded with them <laughs> forever, at least from my memory bank. Maybe not theirs. <laughs> and, I mean, it's, it, that is so cool. Um you know, the the one difference is the the writer who wins the Spink Award and the broadcaster who wins the Frick Award are no longer uh, honored on the same day as the players to shorten up that ceremony. So 
Um, my speech, my ceremony is Saturday, uh, okay. July 20th. Okay. And then on Sunday, the 21st, when those four players plus the, the two from the Veterans Committee get inducted, uh, I will be introduced, wave to the crowd. I'm sure there'll be you know, several people who are, are happy to see me that day, most of whom are related to me, and, and, and then I'll disappear. Yeah, but for the, uh, everything else that goes on that weekend, yeah. I will be treated like those guys are treated. It's That's an awesome. incredible thing to even contemplate. That's awesome. And just remember one thing. If you want to talk to Junior, go up to Edgar and speak to him. And then, maybe, work. and then maybe Junior will come over and have a chat. <laughs> thank you for that wisdom. Uh, I just took it from you. Jason, thank you so very much. Congratulations to you. There's nothing better than reading your stuff in The Athletic. There's nothing better than hearing your voice on Mitch Unfiltered. Don't be a stranger, and we'll be cheering you all the way to Cooperstown. Thanks so very much. Mitch, it's always great to talk to you, man. Thanks. There's Jason Stark giving us the answer that I pretty much expected on Felix Hernandez as much as I was hoping for different. It's been a couple of years since Land Rover produced the Defender, but it's coming back, and it's really spectacular. The order list is already filling up at Jag Land Rover of Bellevue, but Al and Dimitri have both promised me that listeners of the Mitch Unfiltered podcast go to the front of the line, so we got that going for us, which is nice. Road and Track did a piece on their most highly anticipated 2019 vehicles, and there she is, the Land Rover Defender. It will still be an aluminum-bodied truck, with off-road chops, but this time it'll ride on the same unibody platform as a Range Rover, says Road and Track. Can't beat Land Rover of Bellevue, all I've driven in the last 12 years, vehicles I've either leased or owned from this great dealership, and the sales squad is incredible without the stress. A service department which is the best, whether you leased or purchased your car there or not. And a pre-owned selection, by the way, that's not too shabby. Just off of 520 on the Northeast 20th Street in Bellevue, Jaguar Land Rover of Bellevue. Unfiltered. I haven't spoken to our next guest in a long time. He was a kind of a, a fixture, kind of a mainstay on the radio program years ago, a former coach for the uh, the Mariners, a great player in his own right, several times an all-star, a manager of the year in Major League Baseball, and he joins us all the way from the city of brotherly love. I'm assuming you're in Philadelphia, right, Larry? Larry Boa is our guest. Yes, I am. I'm getting uh, getting ready to go to spring training, though. The weather appears pretty cold. What are you doing these days? Well, I'm uh, the uh, assistant to... Uh, to our general manager Matt Clintack, and uh, doing looking at our minor league guys during the course of the season, going to spring training with the big club. So still involved and uh, keeping an eye out to, on this free agent thing. See if we can sign one of these guys, and uh. we'll see what happens. Well, that was my question. Are, are you meeting with Bryce Harper as soon as you get down to spring training, or what's going to happen? <laughs> you know, you, you probably know as much as we do right now. <laughs> It seems like the agents are more involved than the players, but yeah, uh, yeah. that's going to be something I think it's going to take a while. Uh, I really don't see this happening anytime real soon. I'm, I'm sure that both of the uh, parties, the agents, are trying to get the best deal they possibly can, and uh, these two guys are the cream of the crop. But there's also a lot of guys out there right now that uh, people aren't paying any attention to, and, and these two guys are holding up the whole show because there's some good baseball players out there. Well, we'll have to just see how the dominoes fall. Um, Larry Boa is our guest. You were a coach for Lou, I think, in the 2000 season. I was kind of doing the 
Yes. I was doing the research before we, we chatted, and it seems right. to me that Edgar Martinez in 2000, a year that you were with Lou on the bench, uh, 37 home runs, 145 RBIs, and well over 300. One of, if not his best statistical season of his major league career. We here in the Northwest, Larry, as you can imagine, are gaga over the fact that he finally, finally made it to Cooperstown. What do you think? Well, it was a tremendous, that year was a tremendous year for Edgar, and uh, he was the main reason we won everything out there going into the playoffs. Uh, obviously, I think this was long overdue. I, I really thought that he would have been uh, in, a, in the Hall of Fame before this year, but I guess all good things are worth waiting for, but he's a tremendous hitter, a super guy. Uh, I never seen guys, right-handed hitters, hit balls to right center field like Edgar hit him. Uh, he had that knack for uh, swinging at strikes. When he got his pitch, he didn't foul it back. Tremendous with men on base. I mean, tremendous. He just shared his inf- all the information about hitting with all his teammates. This guy was special, and uh, he's very deserving of this this honor, and I'm sure he's very excited about what ha- what transpired. He has a different personality, doesn't he, Larry? He was so quiet and so unassuming and yeah. and so cerebral when it came to hitting. I'm sure you're going to tell us that that was a big part of his success. That's what that's what led to the kind of the discipline at the plate that you're referring to, only swinging at strikes and not missing his pitch. Yeah, you, people could talk about that all they want, but that's something that Edgar had was a God-given ability. I remember one day they were starting at this in 2000. They started coming out with these little tennis balls. On the tennis balls were. You had a black marker and a red marker, but they were numbered. The, 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 the balls were numbered. In other words, number one might have been black, number two might right. have been red. Right. And the whole idea of the drill was to say black or red, you know, when it came out of the, of the, um, the machine. Not only did Edgar give you the, the color, he gave you the number. Wow. So that, wow. <laughs> that had to tell you what his hand-eye coordination was like. I mean... There's nobody in the whole clubhouse that did that. Wow. And, uh, but, but when you say about his personality, he was quiet, but he had that dry sense of humor. I mean, even on the bench, you watch him, even though he wasn't a, an everyday player as far as a position was concerned, he always studied pitching. I mean, this was way before all the videos they have now. I mean, we had videos and everything, but he broke it down. He reminded me, the only guy that I could say came close to the, put, the work put in was Tony Gwynn. Tony Gwynn was basically the same kind of guy as far as their work ethic, studying pitchers, knowing tendencies, when they throw this, when they throw that. And if you take a look at both their, their batting averages, and uh, it's, it sort of speaks for themselves. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Edgar hit over 310 times. Yeah, I'm amazing. Not, I'm not positive Just on amazing. That. Just amazing. I think, I think if he hit 295, he'd consider that a bad year. <laughs> A slump-riddled year at 295. Uh, you know, you, you talk about slumps. I can honestly tell you, usually, you know, during the course of the season, the guy's going to go over 20. Or, he might have. It doesn't stand out in my mind. And even the games he played where he didn't get any hits, he squared the ball up two or three times, hitting line drives right at people. So, like I said, the thing that, that, that amazed me is the way he could drive the ball the other way. Uh, not too many guys could do that, and uh, he was very, very special. What always intrigued me, Larry, about the DH and Edgar in particular is that time in between at-bats. I, I just can't understand, as a guy who played Little League Baseball, of course, I never played like you played and like he played, but the whole idea 
of having all that downtime between at-bats and not going out into the field and either going back into the clubhouse or or having to, to remain busy and remain sharp, that to me seems to be something that I can't even conceive conceive of. But, you know, and, and that is fun special because, you know, when you play defense, if you have a bad day at the play, you can go out and make great plays and help your team win. If you don't get any hits as a DH, you feel like you haven't done anything, but that didn't happen very often with Edgar. <laughs> but he always was riding the bike. He was always hitting off the tee. He was always looking at the video that was available. He wasn't like sitting on the bench and just after his at-bat putting his jacket on and going down in the tunnel. He was always doing something. I think he probably would have liked to have been playing because I think he worked harder as a DH as opposed to going out in the field and playing nine innings. He was not afraid to change his stance and his, and his setup uh, from game to game. He said he would watch other hitters, and if he wasn't going well at the time, he would mimic one of the other hitters, and if he got a hit, he'd stay with that batting stance for a while, and then he'd change again. That seems to be uncommon for some of the greats that ever played. I would imagine that if I looked at Tony Gwynn, you mentioned Gwynn. If I looked at him early in his career and late in his career, I probably would see the same, you know, right. maybe the same setup and same stance. Yeah, well, I think that that's a big problem with, with today's players. I mean, there's no question they're bigger and stronger, but none of them want to make adjustments. They think if you want to change your hands or change your where you stand in the batter's box, uh, that, that that's considered a no-no to most of these guys now. The great hitters would make adjustments not only uh, – game to game, but inning, at, you know, if, if Edgar hit in the first and didn't feel comfortable, he might have done something in the third inning or fourth inning that was maybe it was small, but he saw something in the on the video that, or as you said, maybe watched another hitter when he was going, wasn't going real good. He wasn't afraid to do that, and he's all, he always used to talk hitting. It didn't matter what time of day, when you got there, wow. he'd always talk about hitting. Wow. And I think the big thing is guys would look at him and, because he would make things simple, and everyone would walk away saying, "Yeah, that's easy for you to say, Edgar." But <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy for us. Wow. He, and Rod Carew was the same way. Rod Carew could talk about hitting. In other words, he'd look at you and say, "What do you mean you couldn't see the dot on the ball when it was a slider? That's very obvious." <laughs> and guys are going, and I'm, "I'm just trying to pick up the ball." But those those, those guys are special uh... special athletes, and. And Edgar's right up there with, with all the great hitters that ever played this game. Hey, Larry, before you go, I saw some remarks that you made about Robbie Cano. Uh, it's been a tough offseason for us fans here in Seattle, as you would imagine. They've traded everybody away, and they're starting, kind of starting from scratch. Uh, do you get another Rolex now that he goes to New York? Or how does that, <laughs> how does that work? I, for our, no, for I'll, be our, able to, I'll, be, I'll be able to see him a few more times, though, because uh, he's playing the Mets, and we play them 19 times, and I go to – a lot of the games yeah. usually at home. Yeah, for our listeners who don't know, for our listeners who don't know or remember, you took Robbie kind of under your wing when he was a young player in New York for the Yankees, oh, right? Yeah, we had our we had our differences. Believe me, uh, <laughs> you know, I I used to tell Robbie, you know, Joe Torre told me he says, "Hey, you got Robbie Cano." He says, "We know he can hit. You got to work with him in the field and make sure he does his work." And things happened early that I thought we were going to bump heads, and you know, what he happened? came late a couple. Well, we, you know, we used to uh, meet every morning. His very first year, I told him, I said, listen, this is what I do. Every morning, you and I will go out, and we'll meet at 9 o'clock, and we'll, before anybody gets there, and we'll go out and take our ground balls and everything. And he said, that's great. And so the first three or four days, obviously, he's there right on time and doing our work. And then after about the fourth or fifth day, 
I'm out there with the, my my fungo and bucket of balls and no Robbie, <laughs> and so it's obviously people that know me at nine o'clock, I'm done. I go in. And as I'm going in, he's coming by me. He goes, "Where are you going?" I said, nine o'clock is my time." I said, "You want to come late?" I said, "I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for you. And if you want to do this, we're going to do it on the on the parameters that I tell you. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine." I said, "But I'm here to help you." You know, he walked away shaking his head, like, "Are you kidding me? I'm five minutes late." Uh, to make a long story so short, Joe called me that day and he says, "How's everything going with Robbie?" And of course, I didn't want to say, "Hey, Joe, he's not doing it." I said, "Oh, everything's good." And I I told Robbie. I said, the next time we do this, you're going to have to come and get me and tell me you want to do it. Well, two days passed, and he didn't say anything to me. And then finally, the third day, he came and says, I'm ready to work. And from that day on, I never had another problem with Robbie. And as for our listeners out there, you know, he showed his grat- gratitude by giving me a Rolex walk- watch when Seattle came in here to play the Phillies in interleague play. And uh, But after that little confrontation with him, I never had a problem with yeah, Robbie. That's awesome. uh, he's a great kid, and I hope he, I wish him nothing but the best. I hated to see that little incident that happened in uh, Seattle yeah. with the, yeah. the PEDs, but this guy can hit, and uh, hopefully uh, he doesn't do too much damage with the Mets when they play the Phillies. How much do you think he's got left? I think he Larry. can still hit a lot. I, I do. I think the next two years, two, three years. This guy's one of those hitters that he can roll out of bed. Obviously not as good as Edgar, but he can hit, and he's going to bring a lot to that offense in New York. Larry, you've been very kind to me over the years, both on the radio show and now on the podcast. I hope I can call you again. I always love talking baseball with you. Anytime. Uh, I'll be glad to do it, and I wish you guys nothing but the best. I know you're going through a – I guess they uh, they don't want to use the word rebuild anywhere, anywhere in the big league, so I guess they're retooling. So hopefully they can get some good young kids out there because that's a great city there. I was very fortunate to be there for one year. I wish I could have stayed there longer, but I got that – opportunity to manage the Phillies in 2001, but I had a tremendous time in Seattle. I think it's an outstanding place to play. You get through the month of April, the summers are outstanding there, and uh, the fans were great that year I was there. Thank you, Larry. Thanks so much. Great to visit with you. Have fun this year with the Phillies and in spring training. All right, you take care. There he is, an old pal, Larry Boa, 16 seasons a player. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five all-star game appearances. He was the manager of the year. At one point in Major League Baseball, he was a coach on several staffs, including Lou Pinellas in 2000, the year 2000. Edgar Martinez, 37 home runs, 145 RBIs. Incredible. If you have no plans for the Super Bowl, and even if you do, swing by the new Zeke's Capitol Hill location on Mercer Street. Please say hello. Have a craft beer and a slice. Dan Black texted me today saying that, Large pies will be $15, $3 slices, $4 pints for those of you that are willing to stop by. Also, I'm going to get those Super Bowl square pools going for a dollar per square. No football knowledge is needed, and it doesn't help, but you have to be there before the game starts on Super Bowl Sunday. Northwest-style pizza dough with a West Coast sourdough bite. Toppings are full throttle on flavor, creative and different without ever losing respect for the classics. The attention to detail is noticeable. Come on out. Super Bowl Sunday to the Zeke's Capitol Hill location on Mercer Street. Also, it's a Rubens Brews tap takeover. Happy hour prices from 1 to 8 p.m. on Super Bowl Sunday. I can't wait to be there and meet some of the listeners from Mitch Unfiltered. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered.
I'm bitter. I'm just going to say it right at the start, Jason Lockenfor, CBS NFL Insider. I had a one-game lead. I was sitting pretty. All I had to really do was split the two championship games, and you, you turned me around, you spun me around, you made me go first, you took the op. I don't even think you even liked the two teams, that you, the two underdogs last week. I definitely like the Patriots. If I had remembered to put out my best bets last week, it would have been <laughs> New England and the points. Um, I, I and it was three and a half. I would have. I I took the Rams. Not that I thought they'd win, but when you said three and a half, dude. First of all, I let it, it's your show. I'm just here. I'm just the, the dancing like whatever monkey riding a freaking dog or whatever. What is it? Monkeys riding. I've actually seen that at a yes. minor league game. It's yes. Frederick. Yes. They. It's I think the it's a little monkey riding dog. The yeah. Symbols yeah. riding the sheep dogs, but they actually do herd like. Uh, the one we went to, they were herding goats, I think. There was actually some goats out there in the outfield, too. Yeah, it's, it's the whole experience is monkeys riding dogs herding goats. Are you the monkey or am I, am I the dog in this case? I don't case? know. I'm, what am, I'm what definitely am I? not the dude who opens up the thing and lets them all run out and then puts them back in his trunk and goes on to the next oh, city. That's you. I don't, I don't know where I fall in that equation, but this is, this is your thing, bro. And I, I, you had the lead. And I, I kept giving you opportunities to set it up your way, and we did whatever dance we did. And now, cream well, I just thought, up. I just thought, since I had the lead, it would be not fair, and it would be, un, it would not be fun if I let you go first, and then I just chose what you chose to kind of put you on ice and 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 easily waltz to the finish line. Instead, I said to myself, "Oh, that's no fun. I'll go first, and I'll give him a chance to go oppo. He can go oppo." Or he can just stay steady, and you went oppo, and you were two and zero in the championship games, I and I was. I didn't really mean to go. I just I did what I would have done anyway with the lines. It no, just so that you made cut bad that picks. out. Cut that out. You were you like the Saints? No, you like the Saints. I'm sure you had the recording where I'm like because originally I thought you said they were both three. If you had said they were both three, then I would have been inclined to stay with the Saints because I was thinking a potential push. When you said three and a half, I, yeah. I had to take yeah. the points. By, by the way, Jason for CBS NFL Insider, who is super, super, uber kind to be with us again uh, this week on Mitch Unfiltered. We're talking lines. We're talking spreads. Uh, I know that you have uh, a strong opinion and you've done some work on the NFL and Vegas and gambling and the Raiders going to Vegas in a couple of years. When are we going to see the NFL officially start partnering up with Vegas on on sports gambling? And what's going to happen? What's going to be the results of that for all of us who love sports sports wagering? Funny you should ask, Mitch. <laughs> to read more about this, you could go to cbssports.com backslash, I think, Jason Lockenfora. Either way, you could find it. Just do whatever, uh, go into Google and put in Lockenfora gambling and sports betting committee. Um, so, yeah, I have been sort of gathering some string on this for a while and talking to people sort of along the course of the season and taking their temperature. And we, we've reached a fever pitch now with the, the league announcing Caesars as its official casino. Now, they would make the delineation that that's not their official sports. You know, it's not their official uh, sports betting parlor or what do they call those things? Um, there's a better name for it. Sports book. Right? It's not the official yes. sports book. Yes. Yes. It's just the official casino, but with individual teams partnering with casinos now and with the kind of money that's already starting to trickle into the advertising uh, sphere through the, you know, the daily fantasy places 
doing their own books now and all that stuff. We're, we're on the precipice of it. There's, you know, these owners are looking at this now as the potentially second biggest revenue stream in all of football after the TV wow. contracts. Wow. The billions, billions, plural. How does it work? And How does it work? They, 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 just, they just get a take of every – of, uh, of every well, legal of every legal wager that's made on an NFL game, the NFL gets a little piece of that. Is that the way it works? They're, they're, they're trying to, through their lobbying arms, they're trying with the other sports leagues to enact some sort of regulation like that. With or without that, though, once the league is comfortable with the technology at play, and, and that's what this sports betting committee has been working on all year i'm told which is a group of owners and people at the league office who have long conference calls every friday to update okay should we take bids on this model or that model who's going to be the official information provider of you know the nfl when it comes to gambling who's going to be the official real-time stats and do we have that as ironclad as it needs to be because once we start like once somebody gives us whatever 500 million dollars a year to be the official you know, whatever, sports book of the NFL, and they're using our trademarks, and we've signed off on this, like, we can't find out on Tuesday, like, oh, yeah, that sack that we, we gave to, uh, you know, whoever, yes. K.J. Wright? Yes. Yeah, we've changed it now, you know, and that now goes to, that should have been, you know, Frank Clark's, because you're going to give everybody the money back? Like, how, you know what I mean? That, that Once the league is in this thing all the way, Stuff like that can't happen. Right. And so that's what they're really focused on right now is the IT and the technology. You know, if that dude really scored from the one, like we can't now have, you know, it, it's obvious on replay that he didn't score, but if we still give it to him, like that's where they are. And, and they want to be as comfortable with that part of it before they start taking all the millions that are coming in sponsorships. And what is next gen, next gen stats worth? Like, they have all this proprietary information where for five or six years now they've been putting microchips in players, and they know who runs the fastest, who jumps the highest. You know, will they open their own betting parlor with next-gen stats on NFL.com where, you know, there you can exclusively go to see who's going to run the fastest nine route this week, who's going to throw the ball with the most acceleration, who's going to cover the most ground, you know, on a field, who's going to, you know, whatever. Or – do they sell that to a particular sports betting site for God knows how much so they can use that information to better set their lines, set their over-unders, set their individual prop bets? Will they eventually have betting parlors in stadiums like they have in that the English Premier next, League? Yes. That, that, that was my next question. I don't know my, about that by next year, but that's so, when you start. Once this ball starts rolling, yeah. that's why I'm saying so I, billions. So I, I, can, I can go. Ultimately, you think I can go to a game and wager in the stadium on that particular game? On, that, on the next play. On the on next play. On five plays from now on – the accumulation of a particular player stats on the accumulation. Oh, I knew this was going to happen as soon as we started. Um, it's okay. It's okay. I can edit. Oh, wait. Just give me one second. Here. It's okay. I'll edit. Hello. Thank you. All right. Come on, Copper. We're going to the other one. Come on, numbnuts. Come on, Copper. Come here. Come here. Come on. Come on. <laughs> I'll get a treat, and then he'll, he'll, he'll follow me. Just let me grab a... A treat real fast. Who's there? Oh. Wait a second. Come on, dog. Come on, ding dong. 
here we go. Come on. Here we go. Come on. Come in here. There. Go get it. Go get your treat. <laughs> Don't you open this door, buddy. Don't open it. <clears throat> Don't open it. Hopefully he won't bark like crazy. That's okay. Um, who was at no, the door? Who was at the door? I think I want to. I think our, I, I think I, I, I want to leave this in. This is better than anything that, huh? that we've done. I think I want to leave all that in. This is better than anything. Yeah, this is better than anything we've done so far. I like it. Listening to you and Copper. The bar as well. Um, <laughs> stay here, boy. Copper. Uh, Copper. Yeah, I think we're eventually getting there, um, Mitch. But I, I it's going to start with eventually taking these sponsorships and aligning themselves with, you know, William Hill or Ladbrokes or whoever is going to be their official partner for this or that. And then you've got everything going on at the team level. Um, you've got them potentially getting cut a cut of, of the bets. <laughs> this is going to be a problem. And you've got uh, oh, whatever the, you know what their proprietary information is worth, and I think you're going to see a lot of this come to fruition by next year because I'm told there's a strong push by the owners to um, look if it's this mainstream, if the commercials are on TV, you know, if it's coming on a state by state basis in a wave, it's time for us to get out our surfboards and start riding that green cash wave as well. And you don't set up commissions like this and invent, invest this much time in it and have a seven-month off-season to start in September right back where you were in February. So, I, I, and, and it's going to, you know, look, I, I think at some point, and this is being talked about at the league office as well, if this is all happening, then when do we reopen our contracts with our broadcast partners, you know, and no longer preclude them from using terms like over-under and point spreads and all that. Wow. You know, I think that yeah. it will, that will hasten the continued mainstreaming of all this and I think, you know, I don't know that it happens next year, but certainly in the next two years, I think the way your screen looks during games and pregame shows is going to be vastly different. And here in the D.C. area, the, the, the Wizards recently did a game. Yeah, I heard. One of their broadcasts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, where it was set up almost like you could go to a betting pipe. If you've ever been in Europe or seen what the betting parlors are there, and they've got the prop bets down the side of, of the screen. And, you know, it wasn't like a touchscreen experience. I couldn't just touch my screen and make a bet from my, you know, living room in Baltimore. But that's coming. And that's all of that is, is the NFL will get their cut. Anytime you use their trademark, anytime you use their copyrights, anytime you use their logo, a team logo, a team nickname, they're ringing the cash register. Wow. Wow. They're ready to start wow. ringing the cash just register. Just the idea, just and, the, uh, just the idea of me going to a, a Seahawks game and sitting in my seat wagering on the next play or the next quarter or the next half and just continually again, making wagers. I'm not wages. saying that's, that's week one next year. I'm not saying that's week one next year. But that, that I mean, that's, that's where this is, will eventually go. You'll have sponsorships with these individual betting houses to have their betting parlors there. I'm sure there might be a gambling suite. They'll change out maybe some of the club levels at some of these stadiums, and maybe some of those will be more geared – towards gambling I, I, they're always trying to incentivize the game day experience on um, this how would this not be a part of it you know you'll get perks you'll get special bonuses you'll get team gear for making your bets in stadium rather than doing it from your couch on your you know on your uh, cell phone 
Unbelievable stuff. Jason Lock and Four and Copper Lock and Four making his debut, by the way. His debut on the pod, on but the I pod. have to think he yeah. he made his presence felt in past incarnations, right? Yes, he had yes. to. But that's his that, that's his dog, that's yeah. his Mitch unfiltered debut. I owe him a bone or something. I, I gotta send I gotta send him some sort of compensation for Copper. I'll be, uh, I can't even say if I were to say T R E A T right now, he would start going <laughs> Say it. I think I could say, say bone. It. Say, yeah, you could send him a bone. Say, he doesn't know what a bone is. Say T R E A T treat? Treat? He's just looking at me sideways. He knows we can't get to him because I have I have a Peloton bike and I have a rocking chair blocking the French doors so he cannot get out and mess with our friends who are here. Okay. Jason with the house. Jason, let's get back to point on yes. on these two games. I want uh, just a couple of thoughts on each game. Number one, let's start with the Kansas City New England game. We've heard all about Andy Reid's problems in the playoffs in the past. He did lose at home. Uh, but he did make it to the AFC Championship game, and he did lose to the Patriots. How does this yeah. change or alter the narrative on Andy Reid's coaching career? What happened in the AFC Championship game? I, I don't, I don't think it does. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it does. He, uh, yes, he didn't get to the Super Bowl. Yes, he still hasn't won a Super Bowl. Um, I thought. You know, look, but how many people really in their heart of hearts back in August thought they were going to go 12-4, and four, be the one seed with Mahomes, you know, overcome which, what was a crappy defense all year? I mean, it was a horrible defense, and they made you – and they were the most penalized team in the NFL, and nobody really talked about either for 19 weeks because, well, they just keep winning and Mahomes is doing stuff that young quarterbacks are not supposed to be able to do. And I'm sorry, I'm not giving the credit to that for Cliff frickin' Kingsbury. That's Andy Reid and his staff and what they've done with this kid since they drafted him. That's, you know, Nagy before he left or Nagy or whatever we're supposed to call him this week. That was, that is, you know, uh, Kafka, the quarterback coach who replaced Nagy. Um, that's Andy Reid. So, they're not going anywhere. They're going to be a factor for years to come. I think they find a way to get a little better on defense next year. So this isn't one of those where I think Andy Reid, of course he's, he's torn up about the way the season ended and being so close and yada, yada, yada. But I don't think he's sitting there saying, where the hell do we go now and how do we get over this hump? This kid's going to get better. Um, they've got pieces around him. Uh, they got to fix the defense. Um, look, I mean – they lost like Kareem Hunt got chucked out of the league in the middle of the season, and you know these guys are more or less humming along. Yeah, Damian. You know Williams. they get, yeah. get Williams signed to a yeah. two-year deal. They're yeah. fine. They still ran the ball pretty well. Like, I don't think this is one of those holy bleep Andy Reid moments. He, I, I know he's not the youngest coach in the league, but he's also not the oldest. Um, San Diego, San Diego. The Chargers are a tough team. The division, um, you know, will probably be better next year than it was last year. But they they're going to probably be, you know, better too. So where I, where is I the, can't kill Andy Reid. Like if you want to blame him for for that stupid challenge, I'm with you there. That was that was sort of quintessential playoff Andy Reid. But they ended up scoring the touchdown without the touch without the timeout any, or you know yes putting themselves in position to win the game and take it to overtime even with that blunder, and I, I can't blame him for D Ford. I can't blame him for the 38 points given up at home. Um, you know, I can't blame him for three straight third and tens that Brady converted. Where is this $200 million rumor for Pat, Patrick Mahomes know, coming? Dude. Is that a Lee Steinberg thing? Is he doing? I, is he pulling I, a Scott I, Boris? No, I don't think – I mean, 
I don't even know that that's from Lee. I mean, I, I don't know. You're asking the wrong guy. I don't know. Maybe ask Condoleezza Rice. She might know. <laughs> well, where is it coming Maybe from? Maybe she knows. Maybe that's what she would have paid. Like, if she did become coach of the Browns, maybe that's what she would have been willing to trade Mahomes if she were to, like, if she were to trade, I don't know, Mayfield for Mahomes and then give Mahomes $200 million. I don't know. You're asking the wrong cat. What about uh, Kareem Hunt? What's the latest? I-, I think within a week after the Super Bowl, there's a pretty good chance he's signed somewhere. Um, I expect him to meet with the NFL, if not this week, then um, not long after. And How long will the suspension be? Well, How long will the suspension be? I have no idea. I would just be guessing. Um, but it, it, I, don't, like, he's not gonna, I don't expect him to miss the 2019 season. I expect him to be able to come back. And whatever team signs him is going to sign him to a month. They're going to buy low on him for more than one year. So I, I don't think at the end of the day that's going to that's gonna be – a factor. He'll, I think he'll sign with a team before anybody knows what the suspension is. Who's the team? I don't know. I, I don't know. Give me a couple. I don't know. I, me, I don't want to guess. I don't want to guess. Give me a couple. Come on. You got a couple. I, I have, you could make the case for a, a whole bunch of teams. If you're able to get an all-pro running back you know, for a million dollars a year for two years plus incentives or whatever, I, I what about the PR? you could make the case for anybody. What about the PR? Huh? What about the PR? Somebody signed, you know, Greg Hardy. Somebody claimed Ruben Foster on waivers without even knowing what was going on. I mean, it's not, it's not everybody's cup of tea. There's certain teams where they just won't do it. Baltimore post Ray Rice, it's not even a consideration. But a lot of other teams, you know, you can, if you can convince the owner, in some cases the owner's wife, to go along with it, then it's, it's going to happen. Um, you know, we'll see. How bad was the thing in New Orleans? I read where they had to move the officials out of their hotel on Saturday night to a different hotel, uh, the the play, obviously. I don't know that it was that they had to or that they just felt like let's just, you know, what I heard was more let's not even play any games. You know what I mean? Let's just go ahead and do this just in case. I heard it was more of a um, preemptive strike than it was a reaction to anything that happened. How terrible of an injustice was it in your estimation? shouldn't happen i mean i don't understand why on that stage that big with only one game being played and all al riveron and all his minions in new york and everybody knowing big brother's watching and big brother has the capacity to get in their ear and keep an atrocity an officiating atrocity from happening and on a play that obvious where you could have really thrown the flag for at least three different reasons and not gotten any pushback for everybody to just basically you know sat on their collective thumb and, and just sort of whistled into the wind. I think it's appalling. Um, it, 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 it's, it's hard to figure. It was a terrible day of officiating. I don't think we're going to, um, you know, I know there was a lot of knee jerk reactions like, Oh, now there's going to be all this seismic change coming and Oh, look at it. That's not how this league works. Um, this too shall pass. I think there'll be a lot of navel gazing, a lot of discussing, you know, Rich McKay and the competition committee will write their reports and they'll send out their surveys, the coaches and GMs. And at the end of the day, it's up to the owners. The owners run this league. The owners changed over time. The owners have to, the owners who actually vote on all this stuff. It's not, not that other stuff really matters. When, when rules gets changed, get changed, it's because the owners want them changed. And Gail Benson put out as strongly a worded a statement as I've seen from an owner in regards to on-field matters, I'm taking out Deflategate and, you know, Spygate or whatever other gates I'm forgetting. In terms of an officiating decision in a game, did you see a single owner back her up? No. Well, there you go. You know, like that's, 
it only like, uh, that's where it is. So um, could a few things all be altered? Yeah. Will they go to the Bill Belichick idea of let's just get it right all the time? And we have the capacity to more or less get it right all the time. So let's just make everything reviewable. No. Are they going to start reviewing every pass interference? I highly doubt it. You know, will there be some incremental changes made? Probably. But um, I, I, I don't think it's going to change football as we know it. Go back to what you said earlier about the, the play and Big Brother watching and everybody in New York watching one game. I don't know that I understand. Obviously, they can't review it. There's no replay. There's no challenge. What, what after the play? Okay, bang, bang, play. No flag is thrown. Could New York have done something at that particular point, said something well, in someone's ear? they get in their ears. They say they only open up the line of communications at certain times, but we know the communication is there for them to get in so, their ears and so, say, so, up. Okay, so I huddle mean, up, and then they come back and throw a flag. Rules, you know what I mean? Or, seems, or whatever. Yeah. The, the, in, the, the technology is there. So, like, the, the, this idea that, well, we're only going to use it at certain points. Like, you can, like if you want to keep that, like, facade going, or, or, or you know what I mean? Fine. Say that publicly. But then privately, we don't need to know. You know what I mean? Like, we don't need to know that Rivera got in their ear and said, this, it's bad, it's egregious, huddle up, take your time. But something happened here. Did that happen? Who's the wiser? Did that happen? Clearly not. They didn't okay. change anything. Okay, but then they would have had to turn around. It would have been like it would have been like intentional grounding that's made the decision is made to throw the flag like thirty seconds later after they decide if he was out of the pocket or not. I've never seen that happen in a in a in a, in a pass interference situation where the play is happens and then there's a huddle and then the, the, the official comes out and throws a flag, you know, a minute later and says there was pass interference on the play. That would have been unprecedented though. I've seen a lot of instances where I can't I can't tell you the specific penalty, but or infraction or potential penalty, but where you see a late flag coming in, or they huddle up and all of a sudden they pick a flag up. Oh, that really wasn't offensive pass interference. In fact, that happened. Yeah, that happened. Well, that's different. One game later, that's different. I'm talking about. How's it different? I'm, well, I'm talking about outside of the only time you the ever pass see was complete. They threw yes. the flag. Yes, you, and they, pick they it huddled up. up. Right. They right. talked about it. Right. They picked it up. Right. They got on the speaker to the Chiefs and told those fans, no, it wasn't OPI. I think that's different. I, we've seen that a million times. Well, we've seen it a million times. What I'm saying to you is what we haven't seen outside of the of – the, uh, Intentional we, grounding? We, yeah, intentional grounding. He was out, outside. We, we huddled up. Right. You know what? He and then, was outside. And then, the they take, and then they take the flag out of their pocket – several seconds to a minute after the play has already been completed and they toss the flag, yes. But what we've never seen is something like that in any other call. Well, how do we know we don't see it, though? Because we don't really know who's talking to whom. Yeah, but I mean, we, 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 but we, we know. We've never seen it. But, but, Jason, we know when the flag goes down. We know when the flag goes out of the pocket. And on pass interference, the flag comes out of the pocket either during the play or a moment. You've never seen a late flag on pass interference in what, your life in a regional game we, and anything else? No, we've never. I, I, I can't. I'm telling you. I'm, that, I'm telling you. We've ne- well, when I when I say late flag, we've never seen officials huddle up and then a minute later come out throw a flag for pass interference. I, I can pretty I certainly I say that. that. I, I can't. I can't say that. I know that. I mean, and I'm watching every game every okay. week, and you don't obviously see every single play. Okay. But I I don't know that that's never happened in the okay. history of the game. Okay. I don't know that I can. Okay. I, I, it, it would have been a first for me. 
It would have been a first for me if a minute after the play was over, they huddled and then they came back and threw a flag for pass interference. That would have been outside of intentional grounding. That would have what been a first for me. What if they didn't say it was pass interference? What if they said it was helmet to helmet? You could have, you could have said three different things. What yeah. if they said it was targeting? It would have still been a first for me if it was a minute no. later. A minute later. Well, you're saying a minute. I don't know that it's a minute. I mean, he, we started seeing those replays immediately. There wasn't one early angle that didn't make you think, oh, bleep, it's more than one penalty. You know what I mean? Like, they're seeing it as soon as it's in the truck. As soon as it's in the truck. So what is the delay? A half a second? What's the speed of light? I don't know. As soon as it's in the truck, now it's New York. You know, now it's going to New Whatever we have in the truck, New York is starting to see. As we're Well, it's not us, and this game was on Fox, but you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, guys, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Maybe huddle. Maybe huddle. Hey, it's really bad. It's really bad. Somebody should probably throw a flag. I mean, what is that, 15 seconds, 30 seconds? Well, I think the huddle and the communication, I think it's closer to a minute. And they come back, and then they throw the flag, and they say pass interference or, uh, you know, illegal, illegal hit, helmet to helmet. I, I, it would have been to me. Saw, the I back think, judge saw, uh, you know, he, he did see the helmet hit the helmet. I think that if it's not if it, if if it's not reviewable and it's not replay, then the officials have to get together on their own without somebody from New York telling them to get together. They got to get together on their own. Somebody's got to come over to that guy and say, What's "I the saw head." To- where the impetus comes from? Because what is the difference because where, the, where the impetus because comes the rule from? states replay is the not used. Aren't seeing anything? New York is. Yeah, but the officials I, aren't seeing anything new yeah. except for whatever they start putting on the scoreboard at whatever point. You know what I mean? They're putting something on the jumbo. I just think. It opens a huge, a, a huge can of worms. A huge can of worms. A bigger if, if can of worms than this? Uh, than where they already are? I don't know. I don't know. Why is that? What, what is the point of having it? If it's, I mean, so we took it from they only talked to them on the sidelines to then they established, well, yeah, they can get in their ear. You know what I mean? For pr- pretty much whenever they had to. Then if you're not getting in their ear for that, then why? Why? Or you put you put a video hub in every single stadium. And there's uh, and you know somebody trained by the league there, so you've got New York looking at it. Got it. But it could be yeah. even faster than that. It could be literally a guy gets on a walkie-talkie and boom. Uh-huh. Now we're not even. Now it's not even satellites or whatever. It's somebody in the stadium saying, "Wait, wait, wait, stall, stall this one out." Safe travels to Atlanta. Thank you. Thanks to Copper. Thank Copper for us. Oh yeah. Okay. Give him a treat. I, I will. Give him a T R E A T for us, and we'll talk to you yeah. in Atlanta next week. We'll do. Okay. All right, sounds good, buddy. Okay. Unfiltered. Our next guest is a former college player. He's a former college assistant. He's a former college head coach. And he also happens to be the National Basketball Recruiting Director for ESPN. The brand new ESPN Top 100 High School Players is out. And Paul Biancardi is with us. Paul, tell everybody in the Northwest who the number four ranked player is in this morning's new Top 100. Well, that is Isaiah Stewart, the big fella, committed to Mike Hopkins and the University of Washington. Going to be a centerpiece for the Huskies. Huge. 6'10", 250 pounds, and, and there's nobody in the game that plays with a greater effort or a greater motor than Isaiah Stewart. What I love most about him is that he just stays true to who he who he is he's a center and he plays between the lane lines and in the paint and he attacks the rim for offensive rebounds that's one of his specialties the ability to attack the offensive glass he's a true low post threat he's a defensive barrier to the rim 
I mean, Mike Hopkins landed a stud in this class. How did he do it, Paul? Uh, we all are aware of the schools uh, that he was considering and the Blue Bloods and the great head coaches and the all-time great head coaches, and we know he's a Rochester kid that plays high school ball in, in Indiana. Uh, is it just as simple as Mike Hopkins developed a relationship with him when he was back at Syracuse? It is, and if Mike Hopkins was still – the associate head coach at Syracuse or the head coach at Syracuse. And we know at one time he was the head coach in waiting. Isaiah Stewart would have followed Mike Hopkins wherever he went as a head coach, because when you listen to Isaiah Stewart on his commitment on ESPN Sunday night, he used the word trust, the trust that he has in Mike Hopkins. And that was the difference. All the coaches had good relationships with Isaiah Stewart. But the trust factor was the highest with Hop. And I've known Mike Hopkins since he was a player at Syracuse and I was a coach at Boston <laughs> College. Mm -hmm. And he's a guy that you, you simply just get close to, you build a relationship with. And once that relationship is established, uh, it becomes a two-way street. And, he, and he's a guy that really can influence players to come to Washington. And that's one of the reasons he got the job. And now they're trying to get some more talent to surround Stewart. I know. We're going to talk about some of that talent that we're waiting to hear from even some talent here in the Pacific Northwest. Paul Biancardi is the National Basketball Recruiting Director for ESPN. The brand new ESPN Top 100 is out. You can find it, obviously, on ESPN.com. Even with everything that you said, Paul, about trusting Mike Hopkins and the kind of recruiter that Hop is, it still takes a, a different kid, a different thinker, to go from Rochester, New York, and pass on Duke, and pass on Michigan State, and pass on Kentucky, and pass on Syracuse, and be willing to take the trek across the country away from his family and play at Washington. What do you know about Isaiah that way? What, what kind of a kid is he? Well, he's, he's a kid who wants to blaze his own path. And if you look at it, Rochester, New York, then he left his senior year to play at La Lumiere, which is in the state of Indiana. So he wanted to challenge, challenge himself to a greater degree playing with great players and also playing against the nation's best. He has La Lumiere right now as the nation's number one high school team. So I think his thought process is I left Rochester to go to La Lumiere. We're the number one team in the country. I want to keep them at number one. I hope to make them that. I want to do the same thing at Washington. I want to be a guy who not is you know, part of history, I want to make history. And I think that's the philosophy Isaiah Stewart has. And I think him and Mike Hopkins have talked that out and they believe in each other. What player, can you give us a name of somebody that he reminds you of? You know, most of the people that are listening to Mitch Unfiltered right now, hearing you describe him and are aware of this fourth ranked player nationally, <laughs> maybe the biggest recruit in the history of the University of Washington program. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. would have been one or two, but he didn't, he never showed up. Um, can you compare him, his game, to anybody? Does he remind you of anybody, Paul? He does. I mean, I, I classify him as a paint monster. That means he just destroys people in the paint, uh, at the rim, on the glass. He has a soft touch, so he can score the ball, too. To me, he's a Wendell Carter type. The young man who played at Duke now is with the Bulls. Very similar body. Thick, mobile, runs very well at 6'9", 6'10". But the hand. The hands are incredible. They're strong to catch the ball. He has soft hands to score it. And they both possess an enormous wingspan. Carter, I believe, is 7'4", 7 7'5". 7 Isaiah Stewart, he has a 7'4 wingspan with a 6'10 frame. 
that's humongous. That's what NBA scouts love to see. They want to see somebody who has a plus four on their wingspan. So it's, say he's 6'10", a plus four would be, you know, 7'2". Seven, seven he's, he's got a 7'4 wingspan. So he's going to get a lot done defensively for Washington. Hey, uh, Paul, you don't think he'll be here more than a year, right? No, no. <laughs> when he gets on campus, he'll get on campus late in June, and he'll be leaving campus uh, early in June for the NBA draft. Uh, he's destined to be a one-and-done the way he works. We talk about skill. We talk about physical attributes and, and the way Mike Hopkins can develop players. We, we've seen that when he was at Syracuse, and we're seeing that now at Washington. Also, Hop has surrounded Stewart with a lot of good talent. They also bring in Raekwon Battle, ESPN 100 player, who's a deadly outside shooter, one of the best shooters in the high school game. When you have shooters around size, the floor can really space out. Stewart's work ethic, Hop's coaching – the Pac-12, he's going to have a really good year and, and he'll have a chance to leave. Paul Biancardi is our guest. Great to be with him. The National Basketball Recruiting Director for ESPN. ESPN does such a marvelous job with their recruiting piece and the ESPN's new Top 100. There's been some movement is available for you at ESPN.com. Number six on that list is a kid from right around the corner, Paul. Jaden McDaniels, we know about his brother. He seems to be an, another kid that's one and done. He's uh, got great size and athleticism. Uh, Isaiah Stewart has spoken publicly, I think, even to you on ESPN about going after Jaden McDaniels and see if we can create a real big monster here at Washington next year. That's not even to mention Quade Green, who's the transfer who was an ESPN, I, I'm assuming a top 20 guy a couple of years ago on your list. Yep. Um, so he'll he'll join the program for games in January of next year. What about McDaniels? What are you hearing? Uh, what are the chances we can keep a federal way prospect here and, and pair him up with Isaiah Stewart? Well, I think the chances just got better because you got Stewart. These great players, they all want to play with each other in different ways on the court, meaning they want to be teammates, okay? They, they don't want to do it alone all the time. The talent wants more talent so that not all the pressure is on them so that they can have a winning team so they can complement each other. Isaiah Stewart said it on ESPN. He said, hey, first thing I'm doing is getting in touch with Jaden McDaniels and, and make him part of this team. So Stewart is going to be the lead recruiter for Jaden McDaniels. <laughs> and, and, and that's important because in today's day and age, you remember the freshman class at Duke with, with Barrett and Zion and yeah. Cam Reddish and yeah. Trey Jones. Yeah. That all started with a group message uh, text. And, and it was just those four guys and the ability to communicate, no coaches involved, you know, no recruiting pitches, but just the four guys saying, you know what, if we go here, we can do this. If we support each other, if we want to be really brothers when we get there. And they talked it out. Coach K recruited them all separately and then obviously all together, but they already recruited each other. And, and that's the difference in today's day and age. Isaiah Stewart has a vivacious personality. And um, and so doesn't Mike Hopkins. I, I could see them having a really good chance with McDaniels. Now, he is more prospect than player. He can make fascinating plays, uh, just eye-popping plays. With it. You mentioned his athleticism. He's 6'10". He has guard skills. Wow. He can shoot three. Yeah. He can pull up. He reminds me of a Jonathan Isaac, who's with the Orlando Magic right now in the NBA. Yeah, played and, at Florida and a State. Bit, yeah. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of Brandon Ingram was with the Lakers and was at North Carolina, that long, lanky body. Now, McDaniels, 
won't be as productive as Isaiah Stewart if he comes to Washington, but he will have flashes of you know, brilliance and dominance, and he can do things that nobody on that roster can do. So you can imagine, Paul, what, uh, what Washington Husky fans are daydreaming about, basketball fans are thinking, hmm, can we convince Jalen Noel to stay one more year, bring Stewart in, have Stewart bring McDaniels with him, and then put Quad A Green on the floor with those guys in January of 2020? That, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a lineup that could uh, stack with anybody from an athletic and and a uh, you know pro potential standpoint, right? Yeah, I mean obviously, but from a college standpoint, it, that's a roster that if you just mentioned that roster happening, that's a that's a roster that can contend for the Pac-12 regular season, Pac-12 tournament. Yep. And I wouldn't want to play them in March. Now they would be young <laughs> with Stewart and, and McDaniel's, but I wouldn't want to play that talent. And then you got Quad A Green. You mentioned him, that steady hand, uh, that battle tested guard in the backcourt. Jamal Bay uh, battle, it, it, it could be a, a team that you don't want to play. It, it, it could be a roster that just revitalizes the program. But McDaniels or not, Washington is going to be a factor for years to come with Mike Hopkins. They're already, I believe, in first place right now in the Pac-12. Oh, yeah. Hop showing, yeah. Hop showing what a great candidate he was as a head coach. Landing Isaiah Stewart, it's a major statement. It's a major statement in the circles of recruiting because you're out in the West Coast, Mitch, and you know this. It's been Arizona for decades. It's been UCLA forever. Uh, USC now is hot in recruiting. Uh, they have um, Eric Mobley on staff. His son Isaiah Mobley's coming, a top 20 prospect. And then behind him is the number one prospect in the junior class, Evan Mobley. He'll, meet, he'll follow his dad to USC. <laughs> so those three big guns, those three big guns are recruiting at a high level. Arizona has the number one class for next year already Sean Miller's put together so the Pac-12 is getting stronger by the minute and Mike Hopkins is keeping pace you got ESP because that was going to be my last question you've already answered it I see a USC recruiting class that looks good in 19 I see a bunch of Oregon players scattered amongst the top 50 or 60 in your list and I see of course Arizona so what is a struggling Pac-12 boy the Pac-12 has taken taken its lumps both football and basketball this year, Paul, you don't think that's going to last for long. You think that there's an up an uptick coming from uh, Pac-12 recruiting in the college basketball scene? Well, we got four ranked teams. The Pac-12 has four ranked teams in recruiting next year. Look, there's so many fabulous basketball coaches in, col- in the college game. But when you start getting recruiting classes that get ranked, that means you have talent coming in. Coach's job is to make sure the talent meshes, develop the talent, um, work the work the egos down a little bit and, and put a team on the floor. So Pac-12, the same thing happened with SEC a couple of years ago. They they just had phenomenal recruiting classes that we had seven or eight teams finished in our ESPN top 40 classes. It was no doubt you had teams in the final four. You had South Carolina. You know, you had Kentucky was at the Elite Eight. Just had so many programs that were so successful in the postseason. It has to do with recruiting, and, and that's how you make your way in college athletics. Pac-12 coming back strong next year. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure. I've enjoyed your work from afar for a long time, and I'll continue to do so on ESPN and ESPN.com. One of the real knowledgeable basketball people, both high school and college, is Paul Biancardi, and he's with us on Mitch Unfiltered. Thank you so, so much for your time. Oh, Mitch, I enjoyed it. Let's do it again. Unfiltered. Thank you.
right, so Jason Lock and Four and I argue a little bit. Paul Biancardi tells us that Isaiah Stewart is kind of the next Wendell Carter. I'm not sure everybody knows who Wendell Carter is yeah. from Duke, who's now in the NBA. And, of course, Biancardi tells us exactly what we thought, which is he's a one and done. Yeah. So get a good glimpse. Sure. Get a good glimpse Enjoy of it. the big man, the big fella, big yeah. boy, Isaiah Stewart. Get a good get get a good glimpse of him while he's on the campus at Montlake because it's not going to be there for very long. Uh, and we talked about this the last episode. Just imagine January 2020, Quad A Green. Uh, is Jalen Noel a pro next year or not? Is he in the NBA? What's your what's your hunch on this? You know that's a good question. I, I think there's there's a lot of season to be played. Yeah. To to tell whether or not that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I think maybe he's a late second rounder right now. Maybe undrafted right now. Um. So, you know, we'll we'll let the rest of the year play out to see whether or not his stock would improve. I would love to see him come back of for course. a million. Uh, for no University of Washington reason. Right. What I'm about to say has nothing to do with the team or right. for him. Really? I think there's a couple of things for him to solidify his game, to continue to improve his outside shooting, to also show that he can run a team because he has played a ton of point. I think there's a couple of things that he can do to really elevate his stock mm-hmm. that would make him go from a marginal second round guy to maybe a solid second round to maybe late first guy if he really improved in those areas. So for him, I think coming back would be huge. And that obviously makes the team exponentially better. When you start talking second, I kind of lose you when you start talking second round. I I don't know why a guy, unless he's got a family issue, Mm -hmm. there could be extenuating circumstances. I understand that. But anybody who who hears second round, who's a sophomore, who's played two years in college ball, as soon as if I if I were a father of a kid like that, or I was the kid, as soon as I heard the words second round from anybody, mm-hmm. I'd be like, uh, uh-uh. uh, yeah. That I mean, that to me is a non-starter. You want to make an argument that if you're going to be a first rounder, there's a guaranteed contract in the NBA. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want my kid to come out unless he was a lottery pick. Sure, but I can under I can I can dance with you if you say we're being told first rounder one way or the other. Yeah. That's a guaranteed what two or three year contract. Yeah, That's yeah. a lot of millions. Yeah. and and I, I can't. I, I, it hurts me when kids go out to be the twenty seventh pick in the draft when they can come back and be fifteenth mm-hmm. the next year. But I get it. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start talking second round, oh man. Yeah, Why in the world would you risk that? Yeah, there's only one circumstance in which I totally agreed with the decision. I know what you're going to say. And that was Zeke. That was yeah. Isaiah Thomas. Right. He, because he, he couldn't he could do grow. It. He couldn't yeah. grow. Right. And that was right. the biggest knock. If, if Isaiah Thomas right. was 6'3", he is a first-round lock after his junior year. Now, had he come back for his senior year, he breaks every record over there. I mean, he's the scoring leader. He's mm-hmm. his, I mean, he's mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but he couldn't grow. And, and so and he's so going to be what he's going to be. He was going to be whatever He had no chance to improve a, whatever his grade was. That's exactly That's right. not the case with Jalen Noel. That is Noel. not the case. And by the way, on Jalen Noel, and this is maybe too geeky, I, I've been waiting for it for years, and I just not, I've not seen it. Maybe I'm never going to see it. I just wonder what Jalen Noel would do at the top of the zone. 
He's always playing the bottom of the zone. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many guys lead the lead the ACC it's on the Syracuse zone. I'm sure that Matisse Thibel's leading the world yeah. in, in, steals in steals. And I, and- I would guarantee you that Jalen Noel will lead the Pac-12 and maybe the one of the top in the nation if you put him at the top of that zone. I'm dying to see him at the top of that zone. Don't not, ask me why. Not going to happen. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Very. Well, I mean, maybe with Isaiah Stewart and a, a couple of big guys, yeah. and David Crisp goes, goes, and Matisse Thibel goes, goes, and it makes more sense for them to use yeah. Jalen Noel yeah, at the top yeah, of the yeah, zone. Yeah. I'd like to see what I, kind oh, of – Oh, I was saying he's not going to happen this year. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking and talking. And finally, before we finish up episode number 17, Larry Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. I don't know where you are on Larry Fitzgerald. Fitz. I like to call him Fitz. He's my pal, Fitz. Does anyone but you call him that? Yeah, I think they call him Fitz. They do. I don't really. I don't know. Okay. Um, he signed up for a 16th year. Yep. And I've met Fitz on a couple of times doing interviews and stuff. Sure. And he, he strikes me as like one of the nicest guys, one of the real nice superstars, first ballot Hall of Famers. I mean, really down to earth and really nice. Mm-hmm. It's good to be Fitz. Do yeah. you know what happened to Fitz last week? Well, there's a couple of things. Okay, so you know. Oh, I know. You know. Yeah. Uh, Fitz teed it up at his new club. He's a member now of Seminole Golf Club. Now, I don't know how many people would know what Seminole Golf Let me just put Seminole Golf Club into into words for you. Okay. It's Augusta National, Florida. Okay. Because every member who's a member at Seminole is also pretty much a member of Augusta National. Right. I mean, that's the prestige. I'll give you another, I'll put it in another way for you. I grew up, my home that I grew up, where I was born, was about a mile and three, maybe two miles from the front gates of Seminole Golf Club. Okay. Ask me if I've ever played Have Seminole you Golf. played Seminole? No. Ask me if I've ever seen Seminole. Have you seen it? Two miles away. No. Ask me if I'm allowed to eat at the Wendy's <laughs> down the street. Across the what? Across, across the, the way. US 1. Down the street. US yeah. 1. I've gotten into Wendy's a you couple have, of times. A couple of times? But not always. Not always. <laughs> He's a member of Seminole yep. Golf Club. And he was playing... He had a guest with him yeah. by the name of Barack Obama. Yes. And Fitz, Fitzy, now nobody calls Fitzy. him Fitzy. <laughs> Fitzy went, went ace on him. Yeah. Hole in one. Yes. Hole in one for Fitz, for Larry Fitzgerald with the, with the former president, Barack Obama, in his group. Not bad. And by the way, apparently Obama went first and hit it about 20 feet. It was like, yeah, yeah it's 20 yeah. feet. Yeah. yeah. And then, middle of the green. And then Fitz. Fitz. Is also a member of Whisper Rock down there in the old. God, he's yeah. yeah that well, that's in his backyard yeah. over there. Well, but, well, yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's like a he's like a former winner of the Pebble Beach Pro Am. I think he's mm-hmm. won that event. He's a really good yeah. player. Yeah. He's just good to be Fitz. Good to be Fitz. All right. Yeah, that's it. Daniel's Broiler. Thank you very much. Uh, Zeke's Pizza. Super Bowl Sunday. Oh, you never got back to it. I'm not ending the show. You said you're going to get back to it. We never got back to it. What's your report? You said you wanted to add something. Uh, that I love Dan Black. That was what I was saying. No, I, you, I, said, I said, you also I said, said when I, we start the I show, really we'll like, get back to yeah, it. Yeah, we'll get back to it. I was like, Dan and I go way back. He's a great guy. Tell me this is that you haven't checked yet. Haven't even talked about it. Okay. Tell me this isn't a, this isn't a I have checked about it. No, and no, I've no, been no. told I can't. It's, I'm not it's, allowed to it's show It's just... I see you, we discuss it, and then I leave, and then it's not it's not it's not necessarily top of top of mind. And then yeah. I see you and I'm like, oh I yeah. I haven't checked it out. All right. 
Well, I'll see you there. I'll see you in yes. Capitol Hill. Uh, thanks to Daniel's Broiler. Thanks to Zeke's Pizza. And, of course, Jaguar Land Rover of Bellevue. That's it. Episode number, episode Dave Craig, episode John Havlicek is in the books. <laughs>